the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, peaceful alien race figures out that their new asteroid protection system also has military uses. And with no history of warfare, they promptly wipe themselves from existence, having their first one. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have part two of a two-part roundtable discussion this time on a great short story collection highlighting the theme of the femme fatale, found not only in mystery and suspense, but also in science fiction. That book is called Noir Fatale. It's edited by Larry Correa and Casey Ezel and features the work of a bunch of great writers, including David Weber and Laurel K. Hamilton, as well as a story by Larry Correa. We have with us for the interview some of those authors we have Larry Correa, Casey Ezel, Laurel K. Hamilton, the creator of the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter series. We have Chris Smith, Alistair Kimball, Griffin Barber, Mike Massa, and Robert Butner. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. Hey, we talked about the great May original hardcovers and trade paperbacks last week that are out. Now out in mass market, those are the littler paperbacks, with beautiful new cover for the reissue is Oath of Gold by Elizabeth Moon. Paxinarian, Pax for short, was somebody special. Never could she have followed her father's orders and married the pig farmer down the road. No, no, better a soldier's life than a pig farmer's wife. And so, though she knew she could never go home again, Pax ran away to be a soldier. And so began an adventure destined to transform a simple sheep farmer's daughter into a hero fit to be chosen by the gods. Hey, this issue features an all-new introduction by the author. Also out in May is Though Hell Should Bar the Way by David Drake. Roy Ophultree planned to be an officer in the Republic of Cinnabar Navy, but when his father is unmasked as a white-collar criminal, Roy has to take whatever he can get and take it fast. Under the command of Captain Daniel Leary, Roy has to make the most of the opportunity fate has dealt him, and he will, though hell should bar the way. And now out in mass market is new Starfire novel Oblivion by Steve White and Charles E. Gannon. The war with the Arduans has ended, but the Arduan warrior caste refuses to accept defeat. They are waging a war of extermination against all members of the Pan-Sentient Union. But Admiral Ian Trevane and Commodore Ossian Weathermere have faced down long odds in the past, and they'll do it again. Oblivion by Steve White and Charles E. Gannon, Though Hell Should Bar the Way by David Drake, and Oath of Gold by Elizabeth Moon are now available at booksellers everywhere. This is part two of a two-part interview with the editors and authors of short story collection Noir Fatale. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Hey, I want to welcome Larry Correa, Laurel K. Hamilton, Griffin Barber, Chris Smith, um, Robert Butner, Mike Massa, and Casey Ezel to the Bain podcast. Hi, folks. Really great to have you. Hey, hey, hey. Hi, Tony. Good to be here. Excellent. 
Larry Correa is the creator of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times best-selling Monster Hunter series with first entry Monster Hunter International, as well as urban fantasy hard-boiled adventure saga The Grim Noir Chronicles with first entry Hard Magic and epic fantasy series The Saga of the Forgotten Warrior with first entry Son of the Black Sword and House of Assassins that was just out. He is an avid gun user and advocate who shot on a competitive level for many years before becoming a full-time writer. He was a military contract accountant and a small business accountant and manager. Larry lives in Utah with his wife and family. Casey Ezel is an active United States Air Force helicopter pilot who also writes science fiction, fantasy, alt history, horror fiction, everything. Her first novel was a Dragon Award finalist in 2018, and her stories have been featured in Bain's Year's Best Military and Adventure Science Fiction Compilation in 2017 and 2018. In 2018, her story, Family Over Blood, won the 2018 Year's Best Military and Adventure Science Fiction Reader's Choice Award. She writes for Bain and Chris Kennedy Publishing. A veteran police officer in a major metropolitan police department out west, Griffin Barber, is also a lifelong speculative fiction fan and gamer. He's had shorts published in the Grantville Gazette and penned a well-received novella for Robert Space Industries' website called A Separate Law. His novel, 1636, Mission to the Moogles, with Eric Flint, is available from Bain Books. He and Casey Ezel co-authored a Norris F. novel called Second Chance Angel. Madame Sunderhaven and the story features in a novel he swears will be completed soon, tentatively titled A Petty Necromancy. A native of Texas, Christopher L. Smith moved home as soon as he could. While there, he also met a wonderful lady who found him funny, charming, and worth marrying. Chris began writing fiction in 2012. His short stories can be found in lots of anthologies. He's co-written two novels with Jason Cordova and John Ringo and Casey Azell. And that will be Gunpowder and Embers, Last Judgment's Fire Book One from Bain Books in Fall. And a solo urban fantasy novel is currently under construction. His cats allow his family and three dogs to reside with them outside of San Antonio, Texas. Laurel K. Hamilton is an American multi-genre writer. She is best known as the author of two series of stories, Anita Blake, Vampire Hunter, and Mary Gentry. Her New York Times bestselling Anita Blake, Vampire Hunter series centers on Anita Blake, a professional zombie raiser, vampire executioner, and supernatural consultant for the police. The series includes novels, short story collections, and comic books. Six million copies of Anita Blake novels are in print. Her New York Times bestselling Mary Gentry series centers on Mary Meredith Gentry, princess of the Unseelie Court of Fairy, a private detective facing repeated assassination attempts. Laurel was born in rural Arkansas, but grew up in northern Indiana with her grandmother. Her education includes degrees in English and biology from Marion College, now that's called the Indiana Wesleyan, Hamilton is involved with a number of animal charities, particularly supporting dog rescue efforts and wildlife preservation. She currently lives with her family in St. Louis, Missouri. Alistair Kimball is a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation working with the Violent Crimes Against Children Unit and is a team leader for the FBI's Evidence Response Team responding to and processing crime scenes. Cool. He's worked a variety of matters throughout his career, including foreign counterintelligence and counterespionage. He served in the U.S. Navy, where he dangled from helicopters while performing search and rescue operations, as well as mission support for NASA projects, such as the Mars Pathfinder, space shuttle recoveries at Edwards Air Force Base. 
Iron Angels, an urban fantasy detective novel he co-wrote with Eric Flint, was chosen by Publishers Weekly as one of the top ten science fiction, fantasy, and horror picks for the fall of 2017. That's a fun book. Mike Massa has led an adventurous life, including stints as a Navy SEAL officer, an investment banker, and a technologist. He's lived outside the U.S. for several years, plus the usual military deployments. Mike writes novels and shorts in military SF, SF, fantasy, horror, and nonfiction. Currently, he's working on two novels, a second collaboration with New York Times bestseller John Ringo, as well as the first novel in the Genius War universe. Mike is married with three sons who check daily to see if today is the day they can pull down the old lion, but not yet. National best-selling author Robert Butner's novel Orphan is the 2004 Quill Award nominee for Best Science Fiction Fantasy Horror Novel has been called one of the great works of modern military science fiction. Bain Books will release his 10th novel, My Enemy's Enemy, in June. That's a good one. His short fiction appears regularly in print and online venues, and he has served as the author judge for the National Space Society Jim May Memorial Short Story Writing Contest. A former intelligence officer, National Science Foundation fellow in paleontology, an attorney, he lives in Georgia with his family, and more bicycles than a grown-up needs. Um, so what we want to talk about today is is a new book out at booksellers everywhere. Um, it is called Noir Fatale, and it's a collection of stories put together by, um, edited by Larry Correa and Casey Ezel. Yeah, it's cool. Um, and uh, in, in a wonderful interlude, sort of right, right sitting in the middle of the book, sort of, that, uh, that gets, us, um, gets us back in that noir sensibility. So, um, well, let, let me uh, move on to Mike, uh, Mike Massa and the Three Kates, um, which is, uh, which is a, a weird alternate history kind of thing. Um, and this is the one that is about the, 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 the daemons of the city, which is a story you pitched to me once over dinner, I think, Mike, or something like that. or Somewhere. Did, did. Thanks for having me on, Tony. Uh, greetings from uh, San Antonio Airport, where you may hear some announcements in the background. Oh, okay. But uh, yeah, this I was uh, I was really pleased to be invited to the anthology because it was a chance to exercise um, my uh, desire to write a story set sort of in the world of uh, of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I saw back in back before the dawn of time in 1981 in the theater. <laughs> oh, there's our announcement. But um, I was actually really really interested to discover that there was a genuine. Um, Department of German intelligence that tried to collect objects, uh, occult objects and mystical objects and magical objects in the pre-war years. And so this story is set during um, wartime in World War II, in, in fact, during the Blitz in the city of Coventry, which in, in real life, in history, was utterly devastated by a, a really unusually targeted um, German bombing attack. And to this day, there's some discussion about why did they choose to to destroy the part of the city that they did because there was no military value, no political value, um, no military target. And so we find ourselves um, looking through the eyes of a German spy who's been sent to Coventry for a mission he doesn't quite understand, and he's to recover certain objects, and he encounters not one, not two, but three uh, femme fatales, hence the name of the story, Three Kates. And he has to navigate these, these um, let's call them entities, uh, one at a time, and they're they're inserting themselves into his mission in ways both helpful and unhelpful. 
and uh, things go pretty pear-shaped from there, and he has to fight his way out. Yeah. Well, explain the the mythos a little bit. You know, I mean, you don't have to give away you know the 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 whole of the story or anything, but who is what is Coventry? What is Bath? What is Stuttgart? Well, it turns out that if you have enough people in one place for a long enough time, um, you know, literally centuries or even millennia, that and they invest themselves in a location, that location um, grows a spirit, a genius loci, a self-aware um, manifestation of consciousness um, that takes on some of the attributes of all the emotions that have been poured into that place. So it turns out the Coventry, again, real life, um, is a cathedral built on an older church, built on top of a monastery, built on top of a Roman temple, built on top of an old um, uh, Druidic hinge, built on top of, and it just goes back literally thousands of years. And so Coventry is a self-aware place, specifically centered on the Coventry Cathedral. And there's been a war going on for a long time between the various genius loci, which is what is the proper name for a spirit of the place. And uh, humans aren't really aware of this hidden world of these of these cities and these places that are in are fighting a war against each other amongst different factions. And the genius look, I take advantage of technologists just like humans, and they manipulate human countries and politics to achieve their ends. So the destruction of Coventry, as is explained in the book by the first of the Cates that our our German spy meets is deliberate. And Stuttgart, who's a bad guy, has decided he's going to take advantage of the blitz. He's going to rub out one of his one of his um, uh, enemies, which in this case is, is Coventry. And one of the ways you do that is you physically destroy the place that is bound to the spirit or to which the spirit is bound. And so this German spy's job is to bring back enough rubble to confirm, in fact, that the Coventry is, is gone. And, uh, and Stuttgart and his allies in uh, occupied Europe will move on. And the spy doesn't know that. He's, he's just a, a history buff who's traveled the world before the war. He's sort of like Indiana Jones on the German side is the best way to think of him. Um, he's, he's politically in the wrong place, but morally he's trying to be in the right place. Yeah, he's pretty conflicted about being a German spy. This is early in the war, right? He's, we start out with him listening to Lord Ha Ha and... Um, he is uh, he's he's not working for the SS. No, in fact, he he has a real strong pathos for the SS. He regards them as, as uh, animals and pigs and horse. And uh, his his family was a German family in the twenties that emigrated to the United States and then returned to the Vaterland in the pre-war years as things began to get better. And that's where he grew up. Though he was born in the states, specifically in in Pittsburgh, and that matters to the story because you know, he's trying to pass himself off as a native English speaker, as a, in fact, as a, an English priest. And when he's surprised, he drops into his native Pittsburghian dialect, which if you've ever heard it, is quite distinctive. And so he's talking to this mysterious woman who appears and informs him that she's working for Bath. He's like, I don't even know who Bath is. What are you talking about? And she explains the world to him enough to explain, you're not really doing the mission you think you're doing, and if you actually follow through and do what you're told to do, you're dead. So you better do what I tell you to do. It's your only chance to live. And uh, he doesn't, he, you know, he's like any a military person or a spy. He's, he's got a job, and he's not really anxious to try and switch sides in mid-stride. Yeah. And so he's, he's got all these conflicts going on, and suddenly he's, he's he thrust into a supernatural world he didn't even know existed. That, that turns out to be more important than World War II, in a way, even, to have larger stakes. 
Indeed, uh, the, the Genius War, which is the name of the, the series that this story is drawn from, uh, has been going on for, for much longer than there's been uh, recorded history. And uh, it will continue to go on after the story and after World War II, in fact. But when you, when you view the lens of some of the things that happen in human conflict, and you, again, uh, I think it was um, Griffin Barber was talking about you know, when you take the long view, not in decades or in years or single conflicts, when you take the, you know, centuries and multiple centuries, different strategies play out and things move so slowly that humans with our, you know, by comparison, insect length lifespans don't really see the whole picture. And as it turns out, if you're a genius loci, one of the things that you can do is you can grab a human spirit once they die and you can bring them back as your, as your pawn, as your plaything, as your knight as your soldier, as your, you know, whatever, as an interlocutor between the, the world of genius loci and the humans. And it turns out that uh, our spy's boss is one of those, and our spy doesn't know that. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to give away the story, but the identities of the three femme fatales, who are very much in the classical femme fatale mold, are central to understanding what's happening in the story. And I, I hope I've delivered enough clues uh, that the... Um, the avid reader will pick up on their identities. But the name of the story itself should be a, I thought it was a giveaway, unless some folks have said, I'm not sure who they are. I'm like, okay, well, all right, maybe it's working out. So it's hard, it's a hard yeah. story in the sense that, that I don't give it all away. As the editor, I didn't know who they were. <laughs> <laughs> the story's still awesome. It wasn't until afterwards when I was talking to Mike, he was like, oh, by the way, did you get this? And I was like, oh, no, I didn't. That's really cool. <laughs> but the story's still awesome. Yeah, it's kind of like a little mystery inside of a mystery. That, um, I didn't get it either, Mike. Sorry. <laughs> well, that's all right. Well, there's there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of bombings and gunfights and supernatural struggle, uh, as well as the traditional. Uh, well, well, no, I mean the idea was cool. I just couldn't, I couldn't figure out exactly who the, uh, but I knew that they were probably historical characters. Anyway, um, we won't say any more. On, on giving away the story, but it's it's a super cool idea, and um, the character is, is er, Eric, I think his name is right. Is 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 he's conflicted and and he's kind of fun to just um, to to follow as he, um, he goes from a, a weird place in himself to to like oh my god the world is completely different than I conceived it it was so it, it's a it's a great story. Um, well, let's uh, let's talk about. Um, a completely different the the love story that Larry alluded to earlier, which is uh, Robert Butner's The Frost Queen. Um, Bob, this story reminded me so much of that dang Heinlein story um, about the the girl flying around on the moon. Who um, is, is? I don't know if you remember this even. Oh well, yeah, I wrote the afterword for uh, the Bain redo of uh, of uh, the of the anthology. That was the title story for which was um, was the menace from Earth, and the menace from right, Earth menace was from Earth. in fact a, uh, a, an older woman. It was like in her twenties, and the story's written from the viewpoint of a of a young girl who uh, uh, has a crush on a young boy, and she perceives that the young boy is smitten with the with this older woman, and uh, and so that. Uh, so absolutely, yeah. Those uh, that story. There's another story in that book called The Black Pits of Luna, which also involves uh, uh, young kids uh, getting out on the surface of the moon, getting into some trouble. 
So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that was in my mind, but that wasn't really what uh, um, what what drove me to get to that place. So. Well, tell us tell us what did. It's a moon. It's set on the moon in the near future. Yeah. Well, uh, when Casey invited me to write a femme fatale story, my first thought was, well, this is this piece of cake for me because all my novels have these tough as nails female protagonists in them. Uh, they're they're uh, they're assassins. They're uh, uh, in other cases uh, they're, they're starship pilots uh, and you know, and 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 the guys uh, who are typically more the viewpoint characters are just smitten with them. And I thought, well, that this should be easy. And you know, and as far as the noir part, I mean, I've got all these gritty settings in all my novels where the, uh, for example, gangsters fix prize fights between monsters, and uh, and anybody can purchase oral sex with a six six eyed catfish and. So I thought it's you know this should be easy, and uh, and then somehow the story just nothing I couldn't I couldn't come up with anything that was writing, and I finally realized that's because that's not those kinds of people in relationships. That's not what makes a femme fatale, and I didn't exactly know what did, but uh, then my daughter came back from New York City, and she had taken my grandson. To a to see uh, the stage version of the Disney production Frozen, and uh, they had front row seats, and she had gotten backstage passes, and uh, and afterward they go backstage, and uh, and the there's a 14 year old girl. My son, my grandson's 12. There's a 14 year old girl who played one of the young princesses in the story when she came out. You know, her her father was with her, and he said, "Honey, you probably don't want to sign autographs tonight. You've got a lot of work to do tomorrow." She took one look at my grandson, who had been sitting in the front row, and she said, "Oh no, Dad, I'm signing." And she made a beeline for him, uh, and uh, you know, and that started me thinking, and uh, and then from there on, the story wound up being uh, about a 12-year-old boy who was born and raised in the lithium mines on the moon in about 2070, and he meets and is smitten by a 14-year-old child star who plays uh, a character called the Frost Queen in a touring company of a Broadway musical. And uh, and then, of course, the, the, the mom is involved, and, uh, and at one point uh, she explains to him, and it was kind of cool because I didn't know what a femme fatale was, and then as I was writing that scene, uh, the mom said, uh, she, she said, look, I don't want to see you hurt by a 14-year-old femme fatale. And he says, what do you mean? And she says, meaning she knows what she wants from you and how to get it, but what makes a regular femme into a fatale one is less what she wants than how much you are willing to sacrifice to give it to her. And I sat back and I said, geez, that mom is pretty smart. You know, I think, I think that's really, that's why this story is, is coming together. And, uh, and then it did. And, uh, and I was very pleased with it and wrote very once after that, it wrote very easily 
and uh, and wrapped up, and uh, and I was I was pretty well pleased with it, and uh, I I think it worked. So uh, had a yeah. good time with it. What is this? What is this thing that Isis or Ice as the as the girl? What is it she wants from from Jason? Because that's the that's the turning thing. Finally, is that uh, she's as with most child stars, you know. She lives this cloistered life. She doesn't have much freedom. And uh, she's about to leave the moon and go back to Earth, probably forever. And uh, and she wants to get out on the surface of the moon because that's really what this travel is about. And, uh, and so she induces, uh, she persuades, uh, Jason, the young, the younger boy, uh, to uh, to take her out there, and of course that's a, and he explains to her that's a very dangerous place, you know, and and he just can't do it, and it'd be against the law and all this stuff, and and she says, well, hey, um, tell you what, if you uh, if you let me go out there, um, I'll let you touch my bumps, and uh, there's a Teenage Argo that is is involved in this, and bumps are uh, a girl's bumps are just what you might think they are, and uh, and he said, you know, and he's told her it's a matter of principle, and he thinks to himself, well, even a principled man has his price, and so she, he does in fact take her out there, and things go terribly wrong, and I won't say more about it than that, uh, but uh, but. It resolves, I think, in a in a way that I was uh, I was very pleased with. Yeah, it's a it's a touching uh, kid story, but at the same time, it's got all those elements that you find in the in the uh, in the film because she's 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 might very possibly lead to the doom of our hero. Yes, and that that's basically and and that's what I realized is that that's really the the essence of the femme fatale, and it's not really even. That she, uh, you know, wants to uh, make somebody do something. The the issue really is how much how much us guys are willing to do for, for a woman. And the answer is pretty much, uh, you know, uh, you know, you sleep out in the rain if she says that's the way it has to be, as uh, Percy Sledge. Uh, told us many, many years uh-huh. ago. Probably nobody oh, else in all remembers that song. Uh, anyway, uh, that was that was how it uh, how that one came together. And like I said, it I, I was a little concerned about whether uh, you know whether it would uh, it would fit. Uh, but Tony Weisskopf had told me. Uh, when when I was invited to write a story in, in another anthology, I, I said, you know, I this isn't really my universe, and I don't know if I can do this. And Tony said, well, that's exactly the reason that we ask different authors to participate in these anthologies, so we can get different takes on uh, on a concept. And uh, so I felt okay with with coming out with this kind of a take on it. Cool. Well, Larry, what did you think when you uh, when you got this in? Um, you know, Robert brings up a good point. It's uh, honestly, you don't want all the stories to feel the same. You don't want them all to have the exact same vibe. You got to vary it up and mix it up. 
I mean, in fact, when we're putting them in order, we kind of like try to, uh, you know, we, we, we try to put some difference between them to keep it mixed up. And, uh, you know, so Robert, uh, his was, his was touching. And then Alistair's, Alistair was actually kind of, it was kind of deep and it was kind of literary. It was, it was pretty neat. And then Massa, like I said, straight up action adventure, like really cool action sequences in World War II, Indiana Jones kind of stuff. But then you had Griffin with the, the heist. So across the board, we had a lot of really interesting and different takes on the subject. And uh, you can't really say that anybody has the right take on it. It's just as long as you're entertaining. And overall, yeah, I think yeah. this is a great anthology. There's no, there's no duds in it. Everything is just a fun story. Or, or I mean, there, there's, it's hard to pick a favorite. Honestly, there's just some. There's just they're all really good. Well, this, the anthology ends up with Bombshell by Larry Correa. Um, what and this is a hard magic story um, in your hard magic universe, which is my favorite. You know, and we've serialized it on the podcast, the first book in the series, um, as well. Um, and it, it, but it's set a little bit. It's set in the future um, of that series in the 1950s. Uh, yeah. So okay, so I, I have another Grimnor trilogy planned uh, by popular demand, and it starts in 1954. So I've done a couple short stories so far. Various characters are going to appear in this one. Uh, and this story is about uh, a guy who's a son. He's a, uh, he's a son of two of the main characters from the previous series. Only unlike his parents, who are like very, very powerful, magical people. And this is a, a world where magic appeared in our world, and so it's an alternate history. Sorry, the last one was 1930s. Uh, this guy uh, is born without magic. He has no magical ability whatsoever. But like his mom and dad, he still wants to help people. He wants to be a hero. He kind of grows up around all these legendary heroes from the old series, you know, the, the people who survived the first trilogy. Uh, he wants to help people, but can't. He's not allowed to become a Grimoire Knight, which is a, one of the secret defenders of magical people, uh, because he doesn't have any magic. So he winds up becoming a cop. And so when we meet this guy, he's a NYPD uh, cop. And there's a magical serial killer operating in New York City. Uh, and so he wants to help because he figures he knows more, kind of growing up around it, he figures he knows more about magic than anybody else, even if he doesn't have it himself. So he's trying to solve this case, and uh, but they don't want him because he's kind of an outsider. They think he's going to, like, you know, uh, be loyal to the magical people because there's kind of like this almost racist division between magical and non-magical people. Uh, so he tries to tackle the case on his own. He, uh, the femme fatale character is actually another rookie cop who he went to the academy with, and uh, she has magic. And so she's one of the very first people ever hired by the NYPD with magical powers. And uh, so he teams up with her. And I don't want to give up too much, but uh, it was kind of cool. <laughs> it's kind of fun to get into the, you know, the the whole detective you know, following people through smoky streets and dirty alleys and, you know, uh, got into, you yeah. know, some and you use bar those, fights. Those powers, um, and, and I think is our, is our murderer, at least it seems like uh, he or she or it might be using the, uh, the same sort of strength as Jake from, uh, it's like able to do gravity things that smash people. Well, there's some questions going in, what's going on, you know, and who's doing what. And he, he tries to bring in some backup originally 
uh, uh, from other magical people. And uh, there's some questions that the person involved might actually be a member of this secret society that his parents belonged to, uh, which was the heroes of the first book. Um, so don't want to give too much away, but yeah. yeah, the Knights of the Grimoire. Uh, but yeah, it's it's pretty awesome, and uh, uh, I'm I'm really pleased with how it came out. Hey, could, uh, real yeah. fast though, because uh, people know my grimoire. Can I plug one other story for an author who's not on here? Absolutely, uh, please. Okay, this one's special because nepotism is a hell of a drug. Uh, but my daughter has a story in here, <laughs> and so because forgive me for a second, I got to plug. I got to plug her. My daughter, Jinkly Turia, uh, has a story called Kuro. And uh, and to avoid bias, Casey actually edited this one, not me, to make sure you know it was good. <laughs> and uh, it's about a family of ghost hunting detectives, uh, a Japanese ghost hunting detectives. And it's a very, very noir vibe. She actually, my daughter, to prep for the story, read the entire collected works of Raymond Chandler. <laughs> Holy crap. That's crap. Well, let's. Uh, I'm so right. sorry. Well, let's I'm, end I'm up late. Talking with, yeah, no problem, Casey. And thank you so much for uh, being the uh, the organizer and instigator of, of our roundtable here, Casey. Um, tell us a little bit about Spoils of War. Um, this is basically it. It's not only um, a story you wrote for the collection, but it is the the sort of seed crystal of there being a collection at all, right? Yeah, there is. There is actually. Although, um, do you mind if I finish talking about Kuro for a minute? Because um, oh, I, sure, I sure. interrupted Larry, and uh, and it, it really is a great story that that deserves to be talked about. Um, so yeah, so Hinkley's story is um, it's uh, it, it's a story of a a gentleman that is um, real disillusioned, and um, and you know some some men are born like in the wrong century you know they say that like it it uh this guy this character i think would say that he was born on the wrong continent and um uh he uh so so the character himself is a fan of the this sort of uh american noir aesthetic and so when he goes um when he he's a detective and when he is is given this this sort of supernatural detective when he's given this particular case um it uh it resonates with with that, uh, that sort of side of him. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's got a very Chandler-esque vibe. The, the whole story does. And, um, which is great because I too am a fan of Raven Chandler. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed reading, reading the story and was like, wow, this is, you know, uh, this, this is going to be a lot of fun to, to include in the, in the overall, um, feel of the anthology. So, yeah. It was really, uh, we met, uh, I met Hinckley with Larry out at the LTUE conference, and you saw a daughter who worships her dad there, too. So, <laughs> <laughs> She's, uh, so I only met her in person uh, recently, just down at, at uh, Disney World, actually, and um, she... Uh, uh, she's, she's a lot of fun to talk to. She's very, um, you know, I, I think that she, if, if I can be so bold, I think that, you know, she absolutely admires her dad and, 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 you know, wants to, you know, wants to emulate her dad in certain ways. But I found, particularly in her story, I found that she has a unique and interesting viewpoint of her own, um, which was, which was great, you know? So it's not like, it's not like we're getting, you know, a, a Larry Korea knockoff. We're getting Hinkley Korea, which is, is something pretty fantastic as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, that's really cool. So, uh, well, tell us a little bit about Spoils of Oil, your story. Um, we've pretty much gone through everyone uh, talking about their story and um, sort of talking about the, uh, and Larry told a little bit about the uh, the beginning of the anthology, but um, in the introduction you talk about, uh, you're interesting in that you're you're sort of a, uh, you you kind of made this happen. You're, you're an Air Force uh, Academy graduate, helicopter pilot, major now. Uh, you're kind of one of the people that like, um, they, oh, there's not an anthology for this story, so I'm going to make one for it to be in. Um, and you sort of did, in a way. <laughs> well, it, it kind of came out like that. Um, I So I, I originally wrote the story. Um, I, gosh, you know, I don't even, I'm not even sure I remember why I wrote it. Um, but back in. I do. Is, is Chris still online? I do, I do. Are you still online, Chris? Yeah. This was back in like in 2015, yeah, right? And yeah. you and I were talking, uh, we were talking about noir a lot. Why were we talking about noir a lot for some reason back then? Uh, oh, God. Now I can't remember. Um, I think we had seen <laughs> a uh, – no, I do. I remember now. Um, there was uh, a Facebook post um, for a different small press publisher who was looking for um, hard-boiled noir stories. And Oh, that's right. Yeah, and uh, in case you're like, ooh, that sounds interesting, but I don't know a whole lot about it, and then... Right, yeah, and there was this whole conversation in this Facebook post about what constituted noir versus versus hard-boiled, and they were were splitting some hairs and drawing some very distinctive lines, and um, uh, I just, it it reminded me that, you know, I, like, I'd loved, you know, I'd loved uh, uh, Maltese Falcon when I was a kid, um, and, uh, and, you know, a couple of other stories along those same lines. So I started, I too started doing some research, um, and I read Farewell, My Lovely by Raymond Chandler, and I watched, um, Chinatown and The Two Jakes, and I think I watched Mulholland Falls, or maybe I watched Mulholland Falls later when Griffin recommended it. Um, but, uh, anyway, so, so, um, I read Farewell, My Lovely, and then, uh, the second one, which I can't remember the name of it right now, but the second one that Raymond Chandler put out. And I fell in love with Chandler's style of language and the way in which he would turn a phrase. Um, and I was like, I really want to create something like that. So I wrote a story that was not uh, Spoils of War. It, it was sort of the, the original version of it, which um, Spoils of War is a, it's, it's, um, kind of a sci-fi take on, on my original story. My original story was just a straight, you know, noir detective sort of, of thing, but I did it um, from from the point of view of one of the one of the, the dames in the in the main story's life or the main character's life. Um, you know, the dame with the problem basically I did it from her from her point of view. And um, and I read it and I loved it and I was like, wow, this is this is really good. I wish I had a place to put it <laughs> because um, uh, we had uh, we had the uh, this was right around the time that, you know, we were getting Black Tide Rising together and I was very excited about the opportunity to be in, in that anthology. And I knew that I didn't have a novel there. Like I knew it was just, you know, it was a complete in and of itself as a short story. Um, and so uh, I was like, God, I wish, I really wish Bain would do, you know, someone from Bain was doing a, a, uh, a noir anthology. And, um, and then I, uh, I think John Ringo actually made a post about, um, uh, Larry's Monster Hunter series 
And that reminded me that he also had the Grimoire series. And I was like, oh, well, let me check that out. And I read that and I was like, yes, this is perfect. And so this sort of, sort of like, you know, scheme came to, came to mind where, you know, maybe <laughs> wouldn't it be cool if Larry Korea edited one and then I could submit to him and then he could publish my story. <laughs> and uh, and then I was invited to LibertyCon and had the opportunity to meet Larry and was like, hey, man, I have this idea. <laughs> let's uh, let's do this. <laughs> so uh so that's kind of how it came about so um cool. some of my friends sometimes joke that that i make them do things um i i guess i i guess i don't like being told no very much no one yeah. would have made well, that joke at all before you got here <laughs> <laughs> or anything about t-shirts that say casey made me do it no, nothing yeah nothing, nothing of the sort nope. <laughs> nothing like Not that came up <laughs> Well, your main character in the story, Nina Lafleur, um, is sort of uh, someone who, who gets her way. Um, it's interesting because the main character is is the the narrator is not the main character, like you were saying. It's really Ray Martel, the the PI, right? But we see it all from Nina's point of view. Um, give us a little setup of the story, at least, and uh, and and tell us what's what the stakes are here. Okay, so. Uh, in, in most of the, in most of the noir work that, that I read, I, you know, I noticed a couple of tropes that, that, um, repeated, um, that seemed to sort of be hallmarks. Um, and one of them that was that it was in a post-war environment, right? So, um, the, you know, the main character of the hard-bitten detective, one of the, um, one of the, the reasons that he is the way he is is because of um you know he's a veteran usually a combat veteran maybe still dealing with you know with with some aspect of of that experience um so i um i made this um after a future global war so you know i mean you could call it world war three or four if you want to but um it's you know it's the kind of of all-consuming thing that that um the world wars in, in the 20th century were. And, um, and everything is just starting to recover from that. Um, and it, to include this detective, right? So, um, uh, he's, uh, he's, he was wounded in the war and he's trying to build his life back together, you know, with his, with his detective agency and in walks Nina LaFleur, you know, the dame with the problem. And, um, she, she comes to him with a suspicion that her brother's suicide was not, in fact, a suicide, but was foul play. And, um, and it turns out that her brother was one of Martel's men during the war. In fact, he was, he, he was one of the men who actually saved Martel after Martel was wounded. So, um, so that's sort of the setup. And, uh, and, you know, they're, they're out to, to kind of, um, you know, figure out what happened to, to Nina's brother or, or they, they kind of, they think they know what happened to Nina's brother. They're out to kind of figure out um, Nina's brother's last sort of, you know, what was his last message all about that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, so it's a little, it's, it's dark and, and it's gritty and, uh, and it's, I, I don't know. It's still probably one of my favorite things I've ever written. Yeah, and Nina may have a hidden agenda here. Well, yeah, she's a femme fatale. Of course she does. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So she was really the inspiration for – so when we when Larry and I brought the project 
to Tony Weisskopf at Bain. Um, Tony likes the initial concept, but she needed us to pare it down because originally, you know, just all all of noir or noir mixed with genre, that's a little bit too broad, you know, for for a kind of focused project. Um, and so she uh, she said, find me find me something more focused. Find me something, you know, some aspect of, you know, this, this rather than noir all over the place. I need, I need you to, to pinpoint it down a little bit more. And so um, what we settled on was, was this, this character archetype of the femme fatale. And for me that, you know, that suggestion was, was sort of inspired by Nina um, because I, I did like her as a narrator and, and as a, as a character. And it was fun to, just kind of think in her head and tell this story through her voice. Um, and, and I mean, if you think about it, that's that too, along with the, you know, the hard bitten, often war veteran um, detective, the, the character archetype of the femme fatale is pretty ever present in the, um, you know, in the genre. So, um, so that's, that's where the title came from of, of noir fatale. Cool, absolutely. So I think we've we've talked about a lot of stories and have a real taste of of um, this great anthology. Uh, is there anything, uh, maybe Larry, uh, anyone, anybody else that want want to add or um, um, bring in that that we may want to think about as we um, as we close out? Oh uh, well, you know, well, it's wonderful to... authors in there too. Oh, so go ahead, Chris. It's wonderful to be part of an anthology where I'm listening to everybody talk about their stories and going, I cannot wait to read these. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, I, I, I have never, I was warned when I, when I first pr- proposed this project that editing an anthology is a lot of work. I didn't find the editing piece to be a lot of work. First of all, because I, you know, I was very privileged to work with a, a great pr- bunch of professional writers. So the actual editing required was very, you know, very slim. Um, but I would get each of these stories and I read them and I was like, crap, I have to go back and start over at the beginning because I was just reading this. I wasn't editing this, <laughs> you know, and that happened <laughs> time and time again with every single story that I received. So, um, you know, and uh, it's the, uh, it, I think people are really going to get. Yeah, Larry was was saying this. We didn't get all of them. Uh, we got David. Uh, we didn't get all the writers that are in here. We've got Weber. We've got Steve Diamond, who is a really great writer. Um, dark, dark guy. Um. Yes, and his story his story falls along those same lines, and it's it's fantastic. You know, when you want to talk about post war darkness. That's uh, that one's right there too. Yeah, that's. It, I think is that the one that's set in. Uh, it's a Go fantasy ahead, world that we're actually collaborating on. It's kind of a I think World War One uh, epic fantasy uh, meets trench warfare in a world with really dark fairy tale magic, and he's writing about a secret policeman Ooh. for the Czar. Yeah, it's wow. dark. And the thing is, because that's what World War One needs more darkness. Yeah, yeah, and the thing is, because that's what World War One needs more darkness. Oh, totally. But he's just Steve's so cool and chill. But then you read his stuff, and it's everything Steve writes is dark and terrifying. <laughs> Which is perfect for this anthology. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm really yeah. looking forward to your collaboration when, whenever that comes out, Larry, because uh, um, I want to know more about this world that these, you know, these, these. Uh, I mean, a secret police organization in and of itself is fairly terrifying, but uh, when you add in all the things that, uh, all the aspects and the elements that show up in that story, it's like, yeah, this is going to give me nightmares, but I'm going to have to read it anyway. <laughs> 
Yeah, he, he killed it. And the Sarah White story was great. David's story was great. So the whole anthology is just, honestly, I think people are really going to enjoy this. So you guys, you guys were all a pleasure to work with, and all of you are super talented. I mean, Thank you. I, I really enjoyed this opportunity. Thanks, Larry. Thank you, Larry, yeah. And thanks for doing it yeah, with me. thank you. Letting me talk you into it. <laughs> well, cool. Well, the book is Noir Fatale, and it is now at Booksellers Everywhere, um, edited by Larry Correa and Casey Ezell, and with, um, with stories by Casey, Griffin Barber, Laurel K. Hamilton, Alistair Kimball, Mike Massa, Robert Butner, Larry Correa, um, who were with us, and uh, lots, lots of other great writers as well, um, and Chris Smith. Um, so guys, thank you all so much for, uh, for talking to us, uh, about Noir Fatale. Thank thanks you. For Tony. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Tony. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Hey, that was part two of a two-part interview with the editors and authors of short story collection Noir Fatale. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 25 Ashok sprinted through the night, leaping over fences and ditches across open fields as quickly as possible to stay out of the moonlight. He'd not worn shoes the entire time he'd been in prison. He'd given his fine boots to one of the guards. So the soles of his feet were a calloused mess, but they'd still taken a beating tonight and were bleeding from many small cuts. His arms and face were scratched from crashing through brush, trying to stay out of sight. The only living things that had spotted him had been farm animals that he'd startled awake, or birds he'd flushed from the trees. His lungs ached and his muscles burned, but rather than slow down, he'd called upon the heart of the mountain and pushed on, far past human endurance. He set a brutal pace that the most athletic warrior could have only kept up for a short burst, and Ashok kept it up for hours. The exertion made it easier not to think about his orders. Akershan was on the far end of the continent. 
he'd die if he kept this up. Such a journey could take months this time of year and required planning. This area was all farms and pastures, but as he went south, he'd enter the hills and then the mountains. And as the altitude climbed, the temperature would drop. By the time he reached Thaolands, the snows would be deep. He would need food, clothing, supplies, and preferably horses. Ashok had no idea how he'd get such things now, because his entire life, when he'd needed something, he'd just requisition it from his inferiors. He'd been of the first caste, and a senior member of a prestigious order. So that had been his right. But now he had nothing. No symbol of office, no rank, and no place. How did the castless find food and shelter? He never cared enough about them to pay attention. Workers traded with money, but Ashok possessed no banknotes. Omand had declared he was to be a criminal, and criminals just took things. He was passing small villages and isolated farms, and there was nothing the workers there could do to stop him if he stole their property. But the idea sickened him, and Ashok kept running instead. He stayed off the main road, but kept parallel to it as much as possible. This might have been his homeland, but it was unfamiliar territory. The moons had helped keep him pointed in the right direction whenever the terrain forced him away from the road for most of the night, but the bright Kanda had sunk behind the distant mountains and tiny Upakraha had faded away as it always did. A thin fog had rolled in. The sun would be up soon, and the farmers had already risen for their long day's toil. There were occasional travelers on the road, mostly on foot, but some on horses or mules. Ashok could have easily taken one of them, but orders or not, he didn't think of himself as a highwayman. Crashing through a small stream soothed his feet, but it was only temporary, because the wicked water simply softened his flesh, so the ground afterwards hurt even more. He paused long enough to slake his thirst, but didn't drink his fill, that would only slow him down. Then it was back to running. That narrow, shallow bit of water made him think, though. He'd have to cross the Martaban River soon. It was too wide to leap across and too deep to wade. It was fresh water, not nearly as evil as the violent salt water of the sea, and they were so far inland that it was doubtful a demon would stray this far from hell. But that wasn't the problem. Like all people raised in the highest caste, Ashok didn't know how to swim. Whole men only used water to drink and bathe, otherwise it was better left to their inferiors. The impure and sullied worked around the source of all evil. Submersing yourself completely was madness, and only a fool would swim so he'd need to cross at one of the few bridges or find a ferry. He couldn't follow the capital's orders if he drowned, and the idea of leaving Angruvedal on the bottom of a river was absurd and offensive. Suddenly, 
his foot plunged into a gopher hole, and his momentum caused him to crash into the dirt. Being tired and distracted had made him clumsy. He wouldn't be able to obey his orders if he tripped in the dark and snapped his neck either. And it was truly darkest before dawn. So Ashok lay there, face down in the damp grass, breathing hard, trying to collect himself. What am I going to do? Kuhl had taken away his fear, but Ashok felt a weak sickness inside his chest. Dread. Close enough. It did no good to be mad at the capital. It was their place to give punishments, and this punishment was truly a masterpiece. Not only would Ashok suffer in the most terrible way possible for the rest of his life, but everyone in the land would see his example, serving out the rest of his days in the service of a false god. Resigned to his fate, Ashok rose from the dirt. He drenched his ankle hard, and it was throbbing and swelling as he set out. The tendons protested, but he ignored the pain and continued on, but a bit slower now. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Bain intern Victoria Lambert for editing help and the podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a box of jawbreakers that are made from neutron stars and really work and aren't those wimpy candy variety. And a deed to the richly endowed dandelion mines of Venus plus thanks and plaudits to Larry Correa, Casey Ezel, Laurel K. Hamilton, Chris Smith, Alistair Kemble, Griffin Barber, Mike Massa, and Robert Butner, editors and authors of Noir Fatale. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Stars.